0: Welcome to the Glass Half Empty podcast on the big lead. I'm Ryan Glasspiegel. We're joined today by fellow former Badger, Joe Thomas. Joe is going to be calling his first game for NFL Network this Saturday, 1 p.m. Eastern, Texans Bucks alongside Rich Eisen, Nate Burleson, and Melissa Stark. He's an analyst for NFL Network and you can follow him on Twitter at Joe Thomas 73 Joe, how do you prepare for your first NFL broadcast? Uh, Well, that's a great question because
1: it's like one of those things where you don't even know what you don't know. Uh, And so you try to do what you can, but being that I've never been in that situation before, it's not like uh, I've done any practice or anything like that. Uh, It's really hard to know what you should be studying and what you should be researching. And so... I guess I'm trying to just study like I would when I was a player. I'm trying to watch game film of both these teams, trying to figure out, all right, what are the game themes going in? What are the things that I should be looking for? Trying to touch base with former teammates and guys that I've played against that are on these teams and just try to figure out, like, how do these two teams match up? And if I was a viewer back home, being that I love watching football at home, what would I like the announcers and and the color guy to be explaining to me? And so just trying to take that perspective, I'm going to go out there, I'm going to wing it, I'm going to do it, do my
0: best uh, bet, and we'll see what happens. That all makes sense, and there's just so much processes in terms of the timing, and especially in a three-person booth, the play-by-play guy, who in this case, as we said, is going to be Rich Eyes, and is going to be teeing it up, and then it's kind of like you and Nate Burleson playing volleyball with him. How are you preparing for those mechanics? So, uh,
1: like I said, being that I've never been a color analyst at all and much less a a three-man booth, I think I've been trying to work with some of the people like Jerry Madelon that uh, the NFL Network provides that can help maybe answer some questions and give you some guidance going in about, all right, if there's three guys, you know, you're talking on air, you might need to use some hand signals to try to decide, all right, who's going to answer this question if you've got something interesting to say, but When we get there on Thursday night uh, down to Tampa, we'll definitely be spending some time together, getting in the booth, kind of starting to discuss, all right, this is how it's going to flow. This is the mechanics of this is when I've got something that's interesting to say. And, uh, you know, just trying to get on the same page as far as that goes so that we can provide a smooth
0: and entertaining broadcast to the viewers. When you're a football player, obviously you watch a lot of film to prepare. Is there any football booths that you've been watching film on to see what they do well? So about a
1: month ago, NFL network approached me about doing one of these Saturday games. And from that point on, I I said, all right, well, I guess I better start paying attention to what these guys are doing and what they're saying. And so um, I haven't focused on anyone in particular, but I've just been trying to focus when I'm watching the games on not necessarily what they're saying, but how they're saying it, and at what point in the game are they focusing on certain things? And obviously, Tony Romo and Jim Nance, those are guys right now that are considered the gold standard, along with Al Michaels and Chris Collinsworth and Troy Aikman, Joe Buck. Um, those are guys that definitely I, I have a lot of respect for. That um, I'm trying to listen to
0: them and maybe learn a few things by just kind of enjoying the game like a fan. For sure. And so the league is really fortunate to have such like a depth of quarterbacks this season. Deshaun Watson, Jameis Winston. It's a really exciting matchup for one of these 1 p.m. December Saturday games. I'm I guess it's a really interesting question with Winston on is he good and how good is he? <laughs>
1: Well, I think right now with Jameis, what you can say is there's a huge, very high ceiling right now. We can see that he's throwing the football at a prolific rate. He's pushing the ball down the field in Bruce Arians' offense. Uh, They're completing passes. They're scoring touchdowns. And if you look at just the good side of things, you're saying, man, this guy's an MVP candidate. He's one of the best quarterbacks in the league. Oh, but he's got a ton of turnovers right now. He's thrown lots of interception. He's fumbled the football. And that's kind of been his Achilles heel. And I think the challenge for Bruce Arians moving forward is going to be, how do we get good Jameis a lot? And how do we minimize bad Jameis? Um, and I think Jameis has got to be one of the most exciting quarterbacks in the NFL because when he's on the field, they're scoring a lot of points. And by there, I mean both teams because he's throwing (laughs) touchdowns or he's throwing interceptions. There's not a lot in between, but I think that makes for a really exciting matchup because you look on the other side of the field at Deshaun Watson. The guy is a tremendous talent. He's a proven winner. He's exciting. His teammates love him. He throws the football down the field probably as well maybe even better than Russell Wilson and so if you like big play offenses that are going to throw the football down the field and they're potentially have a lot of points being scored this is the game you want to watch because you got two young guys that
0: know how to score points that's true about both of them it's just with Winston it's so funny because if you as you look at quarterback tiers it's just so difficult to figure out where to put him I think it's Probably consensus, people would prefer Lamar Jackson, Patrick Mahomes, Deshaun Watson, Aaron Rodgers, Drew Brees. But then you start to look at it and you go, would I rather have Jameis or Matt Ryan? Would I rather have Jameis or Kirk Cousins? Would I rather have Jameis or um, Jared Goff? There's so much kind of ambiguity of where you would compare him relative to his peers. Well,
1: clearly, Jameis is not that first-tier quarterback that you would put him up there right now with the Patrick Mahomeses and um, the Drew Brees, those type of guys. But I think he's pretty solidly in that second tier where you could say, all right, if he continues to improve and minimizes some of these interceptions, he's a first-tier guy. He's obviously a Pro Bowl talent. Um, It's just been those big mistakes that have been kind of holding him back Um, and it'll be interesting to see, you know, how he finishes the season is going to be really important to decide what his future is with the bucks and what his future is in the NFL. And if he is able to kind of start minimizing those turnovers and not be so much of a turnover machine, he he definitely can be one of those guys that he starts being mentioned as the cream of the crop in the NFL, the Russell Wilsons, the Patrick Mahomes, you know, Lamar Jackson, he's, he's doing it with his legs. And then his arm, but he's one of those guys who's going to be the league MVP that people are saying he is a dynamic future of the NFL. And Jameis Winston certainly can be up there. It's just for him, gotta gotta start
0: minimizing those turnovers. I agree with all of that. You're on the Thursday night football pregame show on NFL Network with Colleen Wolf, Michael Irvin, Steve Smith. The show is a lot of fun. It's fresh. It's refreshing. People seem to get along. But every once in a while, it seems like Steve Smith and Michael Irvin might almost come to blows. Are they like that in production meetings and on the bus and everything else?
1: I think what makes our Thursday night football show so popular and so successful is that there is that dynamic between the three of us that at any moment, none of us is going to back down and it could almost come to blows. And there was a couple of times, not only in the production meeting, but on camera where we're not going to back down and, you know, we take a stance and we feel very strongly about it, whether it be a player or a scheme or just a take on the game And I think you're seeing real reactions from us. And I think that's, like I mentioned, that's why people really like it because there's a lot of strong personalities and there's no quit, there's no back down in any of us.
0: Is there a behind the scenes story about them that you're able to share that hits that sweet spot where it would be really entertaining for our audience, but you wouldn't jeopardize any of your relationships?
1: (laughs) Well, actually, the year before I was on with them, so this would have been 2018, I had heard a story that they almost got in a fight, like legitimately a fist fight, right before they went on camera. Uh, I'm not exactly sure what was over, but they had to kind of smooth things over. I, I even think that there were some other people that had to get involved and make sure that they weren't going to go to blows and they were going to be able to put it behind them. And, and thankfully they have, cause we all have a, a good relationship. And I think, I think now between the three of us, everybody understands that, you know, it might get a little bit heated when the cameras are on and maybe even in production meetings when we disagree on things. But in the end we understand that that is what makes good TV. It's those different personalities that they don't always get along. There's some friction there. There's some sparks. Uh, But in the end, we understand the focus is on let's make good TV and whatever happens in those meetings, whatever happens on TV, let's put it
0: behind us if there is some friction and let's move forward. I'd love to see the B-roll footage of when they almost came to blows. It's certainly up, not like almost fighting, but they've definitely been pretty angry at each other on the air a couple of times, especially last season. I wanted to pivot to your post-playing career. You had a really dramatic physical transformation. How much weight did you lose? How long did that take you? And what was your diet and exercise regimen? Well, the short answer is, I think it took me about uh, six, nine
1: months um, to lose 50 pounds of playing. So I went down from about 305 to about 255. Um, And for me, it was swimming. I love to swim, Uh, yoga, still like to lift weights. And then I, I started doing some fasting. I'd read that fasting was really good for your body, but also it was a great way to lose weight and then I kind of went pseudo keto low carb and um, pretty much stopped eating carbs and I think that was a, that was a big help in it, as far as just losing the weight and and feeling better that was really the goal for me like I didn't really have a weight in mind that I wanted to get to but I just wanted to be able to feel better I wanted to get some of that excess body weight that I was using to play football off so that my knees and my back and my other joints would just start feeling better.
0: When you talk about fasting, what do you mean? What are what are the intervals that you go and when do okay. you eat, et cetera?
1: So I would say generally during the week, I'll eat lunch and dinner. So my lunch is around, you know, 1230 or so, and then eating dinner with the family about 530. And so that's kind of my feeding window. Um, you know, on the weekends or when I'm with friends, I'll just do whatever. I don't want to be too picky. I don't want to be the guy that everybody's annoyed <laughs> to invite out for a meal or something like that. But. Um, also sometimes I'll do longer fast so that's like an 18 and 6 that's more of your traditional fast but sometimes especially like after uh, Thanksgiving or <laughs> Christmas when you've got a lot of big meals in you I like to do a little bit longer fast where I'll do a 24 hour fast or I've even done a couple much longer ones out to like 48 hours where you know, you're taking a, a couple days where you don't eat um, and I actually kind of like it because it kind of helps me from a discipline standpoint. I've always liked to kind of just test myself to see see where my discipline's at if I've lost all of it since I got rid of playing in the NFL or um, if I still have that mental focus and that mindset that you can do things that are that are still
0: tough. So um, occasionally I do a little bit longer fast, but for the most part I kind of stick to an 18-hour fast. Regarding that discipline and on the normal days where you're not eating till 1230, have you reached a point – in the morning where you don't want to gnaw your fingers off or is every day still kind of the same discipline struggle
1: you know so without boring people too much on the diet side of things i tell people all the time when i was playing in the nfl when i was eating tons of sugar tons of carbs if i didn't go if I went more than two and a half, three hours without eating, I I literally would have killed somebody and ripped their arm off and eaten it. Like I was so hungry. You wouldn't like Joe Thomas when he's hungry. No, my God. I I was like worse than that Snickers commercial where the guy turns into Roseanne Barr. Like I would have killed anybody (laughs) for food. And what I didn't understand is once I got towards the end of my career and I retired and I started doing a lot more reading about nutrition and diet and how food affects your body, that all these carbs and all the sugar that I was eating was just spiking my insulin. And then my blood sugar would spike, my insulin would spike. And then when that stuff starts going down is when you get that hangriness. But when I started eating less carbs and I really cut them out, you don't get that spike of blood sugar and insulin anymore. And so you don't feel that hungriness that you're used to that hangriness. And so now that you kind of get used to it. And now that I don't really eat a ton of carbs on a daily basis, like, I don't even really notice it. I don't even think about breakfast. I'm not really hungry. I mean, I like I said, I've done up to 48 hour fast and I, I'm not even really hungry. Like it's easy. I could have gone longer. I usually could have fasted for another few days. But um, I think my family was just annoyed with me sitting at the <laughs> dinner table and just staring at them eating. So, uh, and, I, and I love to eat. I mean, I, I really do. I, I'm sort of a foodie. And so I, I really love. Uh, trying new things. And, and I love getting together with people and sharing a meal together. Um, but I think once, once you start getting into that fasting mode and you do s- sort of reduce the, the carbs, you just don't even think about it because you're not
0: hungry like you used to be, because you don't have that blood sugar, that insulin crash. That all makes sense. I don't want to dwell on the Browns too much, but I am curious. You had an 11-year career, and you didn't have the same coach for more than two years at any of the points. So Romeo Cornell had been there for a bit before you got there, but it was him for two years, Eric Mangini for two years, Pat Shermer for two years, Rob Chesinski for a year, Mike Patton for two years, and then as far as your career went, Hugh Jackson for two years. Were there any of those regimes that, with the benefit of hindsight, you think could have turned it around if they were given more time?
1: Yeah, the coaches they couldn't stand me for more than two years, so they got out of dodge. But uh, for me, I've I looked at all these coaches that we had, and I was even now, and with the benefit of hindsight, I'm thinking that there was a lot of guys that could have been successful that were good head coaches, but they just didn't have the players that you need. And, and in the NFL, it's just such a quarterback driven league. If you don't have the quarterback and then you've got to have the support cast around him. If you don't have that, I don't care how great you are. I don't care if Vince Lombardi's coming back from the dead or Bill Belichick's coming to the Browns again. Like if you don't have the roster, you can't win because there's a lot of good coaches in the NFL every year that lose and then lose their job. Uh, and so when I I think back, I always told people, I thought Hugh Jackson was a very good coach and that was like the the hottest take of all time being in Cleveland. And because he won two, uh, one game in two years that he was there. Um, but I always thought that he had, he had what it took to be a great head coach. He was a great leader. He's a great motivator. He had discipline. He was held the players accountable. He had a great offense. Um, so he had all those things that you, you look for, but, uh, the other thing is you, you need time. You need time to turn things around. And, um, I thought Rob Chudzinski, he only had one year in Cleveland, but I thought he was a, uh, a guy that could have turned things around. Uh, and so th- I think there's been a lot of guys that could have had the opportunity, but if you don't have the right ingredients, you're not going to make a good dinner.
0: Now I want to badger you, pun intended, with a couple Wisconsin mm-hmm. questions. Yeah. Here's the the most important one. Two years ago at the Super Bowl, I spent a whole day just shadowing Peter King. And one of the things that he told me was that he visited you and your housemates when you were a senior in college. There was like a keg in the sink, a keg in the bathroom. And in the living room, there was a hole in the floor that was big enough for a person to fall through and there was just nothing signifying that that hole was there to people who might not know. Did anyone ever fall through the hole? And am I describing this correctly?
1: You are, and it's funny because I think Peter King was the biggest fan of my college friends and my college experience that I've ever met, including myself. (laughs) I had a great time in college. I absolutely loved Madison. I loved everything about it, but It's every time I talk to Peter and anytime I talk to somebody like you that knows both of us, it seems like that's the one story he loves to tell uh, because he was just so blown away with how I was living right before the draft. And one of the other things he probably told you that we love is that um, we had two deer mouths on the wall. One of my roommate's fathers was a taxidermist and these were like ones that he screwed up when he was younger. And so we (laughs) were hanging them in our living room. And then people, when we have parties, whenever we leave stuff, it turned into the lost and found. And one of the items that was on one of the uh, deer antler mounts was a size like 50 triple F red bra that was hanging <laughs> off of one of one of the deer antlers. And uh, I actually think that that bra made it into Sports Illustrated. If you go back and look at that story, you can still see the picture of that
0: frog, the corner on the deer head. That's incredible. So as you know, there's just so many in the last 15 years what-if games for Wisconsin Badger football and basketball. One of them that doesn't get the same amount of credit as some of the more high-profile ones like the Duke loss or whatever and the Kentucky loss in basketball is in 2006, you're a senior – and you guys go into the big house and play with Michigan. Start off up 7-0 off of a uh, Allen Langford interception that later turns into a P.J. Hill touchdown. It's 10-10 at the half. And then the Michigan just kind of demolishes the Badgers in the second half. But that was the only loss for Wisconsin that season. So you're looking at it. It, it was a tie game at halftime. If you win that game, it's probably a national championship game appearance. Do you ever think about that as a what if, or do you just kind of have tunnel vision going forward in life?
1: You know, I've, I had two Bill Belichick disciples. as coaches early on in my career, and they beat the heck out of me thinking, don't worry about stuff you don't control. And so I don't really think about that too much in hindsight, but I always tell people like, that was the one Badger team that I don't think anybody remembers, but we were really damn good.
0: We were yeah, I mean, you stomped like Arkansas, who had like Darren McFadden and Felix Jones in the bowl game. Is the 12 and 1 team really, as I said, a half against Michigan away from a national championship appearance? Yeah, no, the only reason we didn't get to a BCS bowl that
1: year was because Ohio State and Michigan were both undefeated going into their game. And Michigan lost. So Ohio State went to the national championship. Michigan won the tiebreaker with us because obviously they beat us. So they went to the Rose Bowl. And we ended up going to the Capital One Bowl, which was it's a good bowl, but it's not a prestigious bowl, nothing that people really remember. Uh, And so in spite of having probably one of the better Badger teams of all time and a team that finished with only one loss in Michigan in a game, like you mentioned, where we probably outplayed them in the first half, um, it's kind of like the season that nobody remembers. So I'm glad you brought that up because there is a lot of great memories from that season. And I guess now that I think about it, what if we would have beat Michigan? We
0: would have been <laughs> playing in the national championship. That would have been so cool. The so in 2005, I kind of pride myself on knowing when Badgers are going to be better pros than people think, and I was definitely, I'm not just saying this now, I knew J.J. Watt and Russell Wilson were great NFL players while they were in college, and that wasn't a consensus opinion at the time. But I felt that way about Brian Calhoun in 2005. He had over 2,000 yards from scrimmage. He was a third-round pick for the Lions, but then he only got 14 career carries. Was his success that year a result of you and your line mates just pancaking everyone in front of you, or does something just weirdly go awry with him at the next level?
1: Well, for anybody that's had success in the NFL, it's a combination of of good talent, but also good opportunity, and I think Brian just didn't have the right opportunity. He wasn't in the right situation. He was on Lions teams that weren't very good, but I always thought he was going to be a really good NFL player because he had what you, what you need. He had great hands, uh, actually at Colorado, they tried to move him to receiver before he transferred to Wisconsin. So he was one of those running backs that could catch the ball out of the backfield. You could split him out. He almost reminds me a lot of Duke Johnson, the way that the Texans use uh, Duke Johnson as kind of their off speed back who they can put on the field with their number one back and they can create some matchup problems with him in the slot or kind of move him all over the field. Um, Brian Calhoun was a track athlete at Wisconsin, so he had great straight line speed and he was really, really smart. Um, so I think he just, he just was in a bad situation and never really got the opportunity that he needed to show what he could do. And then I think he tore his ACL and maybe his first or second year. Um, when you have those big type injuries and you have turnover on the coaching staff, it's easy to kind of get lost in the shuffle unless you're already established as a pro bowl elite type player. And I, I think that that was a kind of a combination of all those things for Brian. Otherwise I, I would bet that he would have had a 10 or 12 year NFL career.
0: I mean, cause look, you look at like James white. I mean, nothing, no disrespect to James white at all, but Brian Calhoun was a better player at Wisconsin. And like, then you look at the career white has had on the Patriots and it's just like, he he's, really going to go down as somebody people remember from Super Bowl teams well that's a perfect example of like opportunity and having the right supporting cast and and and
1: having an offense that fits you really well and so you know Brian didn't have any of those things whereas James did and and you know you take Brian he probably would have been perfect in the Patriots scheme it's too bad for him that they never picked him up because he may have been their version of James White back then because like you mentioned, he can run the football, he can catch the football, he was super smart, he was you a know, good third down back, and he really had everything he needed, he just needed the right situation.
0: Sticking with the Patriots for a little bit, Brett Buama, obviously his first year as a coach was your senior year at Wisconsin, and now as kind of a lot of coaches do with Saban and Belichick, whether they either got in... Um, in scandal, or they just lost their way from a wins and losses perspective there. He's kind of studying under Belichick's learning tree, but it seems like only a matter of time, year, two years, who knows how long before he resurfaces again as kind of a big head coaching candidate, whether that's for like a big 10 school or I think maybe even an NFL team, where and when do you see him resurfacing as somebody who's in charge? That's a great point. I I got a chance
1: to see him earlier on this fall when we did the Thursday night game between the Giants and the Patriots. And so I I visited with him a little bit. I I think you're right on. Uh, He was a great defensive coordinator that got him the opportunity to be the head coach at Wisconsin. And then long head coaching experience at Wisconsin and Arkansas will definitely play well. And the fact that he's really kind of returning to his roots as an X's and O's defensive guy under Belichick right now will definitely help him. And and he's a guy that's very driven, very motivated. And I would not be surprised at all if in a couple of years, all of a sudden he, he decides he wants to move on and become a defensive coordinator, either in New England or somewhere else in the NFL, or uh, to try to make that jump to be a head coach in the NFL or, Maybe even goes back to college and becomes, you know, a head coach at a, at a major university. But um, after talking with him, I, I think he's really kind of enjoyed the NFL game, where you don't have to do that recruiting side of it because in, in college, that recruiting is just it just wears you out. It is so time consuming and taxing. And for a guy like Brett, who loves, he's good football, at it
0: though. Loves
1: to win, but he loves football and. I really wouldn't be surprised if he, if he tries to stay in the NFL because in the NFL, it's all about the game of football. There's no silliness with recruiting and all that other stuff. And I wouldn't be surprised if, if he does get an opportunity to be head coach in the NFL someday.
0: If he had somehow gotten paired with a really good analytics and clock management guy who he trusted implicitly, he not that he was a bad coach or anything, but I think that it would have really amplified his success one last quick badger question you were a four-star recruit so this doesn't really apply to you but with both their basketball and football programs they do not rank high in the rivals or 24 7 rankings every year and yet every year maybe not this year in basketball but most years in basketball every year in football they find themselves top 25 top 15 even top 10 what extent do you attribute that success with unheralded players to their identifying inefficiencies in the ratings process versus having training regimens that maximize people's talent?
1: Well, I think uh, it's twofold. One is that Wisconsin is targeting people that fit the Wisconsin mentality, the Wisconsin way. And so they're looking for guys that are character guys that they may not be highly rated because they don't have the best 40 time or the best vertical or the best bench press, but they're guys that like football. They're guys that are high character. They're leaders. They're smart guys that they're tough guys. Uh, And that was always kind of what Barry built his program on. And now Paul Chris kind of carries on that tradition. Um, So they're guys that fit. And when you get a bunch of guys that are tough, they're smart, they're hard-nosed, they like football, or they like basketball, and you put them together, those are the teams that have more success than the teams of just a bunch of guys that are great athletes. Um, but then also, I, I will say the second part is, Wisconsin traditionally has had very good coaching. You know, you go back to Bo Ryan and when Barry were, were here, I mean, they had fantastic coaches. They had guys that would teach the game. They'd been there a long time, so they built a good culture of, of learning where the old guys would, would teach the younger players. Um, and so they really did a good job of developing talent and probably a, one of the best jobs of anywhere in the NFL or, or anywhere in college football or anywhere in college basketball, getting guys ready to go into the NFL to go uh, play in the NBA. I, I think those two things is really what has made Wisconsin such a great athletics university in spite of the fact that they really don't get the best recruits every year.
0: But one time, I just want to see them break through and win.
1: <laughs> sure would it's be nice, wouldn't sign
0: it? Sign me up one basketball or football national title before I die. Just one, one and only one. It could be basketball or football, and I'll, I'll be, I will i be. think I'd be ecstatic with that deal.
1: Well, that's, that's why that Duke game hurt so much that you brought up a, a, a little while ago. The I, Kentucky I one, said, too, but happen. yeah. Man, being up 10 or whatever it was on Duke in, in the second half, I, I felt that that was our game to lose at that point. And when you look at our basketball, you never thought that we'd be in that position, being that uh, everything that goes into the Wisconsin program. You felt like you could always be good, you could make the final four, but it would be a stretch to ever win a national championship. Whereas in football, I feel like we get enough recruits and we have enough of a system in place that. There is a chance to win multiple national championships in football. It hasn't happened yet, um, but we've been there. And so I I, I don't know. If An we'll 18
0: playoff before. would really benefit Wisconsin football because – it's just, it's a real stretch that we're going to beat out Ohio State, period, into the playoffs, and then you also have Penn State and Michigan lurking in the conference too, so it's just really tricky for us to beat out all of them in one year and get in, but we could beat out all but one of them, get into an eight-team playoff, and then maybe make some noise. Well, Barry and,
1: and uh, Wisconsin football team have always been really good at bowl games, because I think the style of football they play always matches up well against other teams, especially outside of the Big Ten. They always play good defense. They run the football well. That combination, just like in the NFL, that's a good combination in the playoffs. That's that's a good combination in, in bowl prep, because it's that tough approach that matches up against any team that you face, no matter what conference they come from, so... I don't think that we're too far off from that 18 playoff. There's a lot of momentum at
0: teams, and it just makes too much sense for college football not to have an 18 playoff. As someone who played his whole college and pro career in the Midwest, how much would you love to see some of these SEC teams have to play in Madison or State College or Ann Arbor or Columbus in December?
1: It'd be awesome.
0: I think it'd be fantastic. I'd one
1: thing that I've been advocating for in my podcast, The Tomahawk Show, is, yeah, let's do an 18 playoff, but let's also get together as NCAA football schools and have a scheduling system that's much more similar to the NFL, where if you finish fourth in the Big Ten, next year, you're automatically, your non-conference games are going to be the fourth-place team in the ACC, the fourth-place team in the SEC, and the fourth place team in the PAC 12. And there's some type wow, of evolving idea. scheduling system where you can still have one or two patsies on your schedule. You can still play a couple Mac teams and you can play a, uh, you know, a, a Missouri Southwest or whoever you want to play that <laughs> you can do a couple home games with Akron and them, but let's make those non-conference games exciting. They can be any point in the schedule. I don't know where it is, but I think if everybody got together and agreed on it, there wouldn't be this concern that you hear from top uh, coaching staffs that, well, we have to play these crappy teams because if we schedule hard teams early on and we lose, we're out of the mix for the playoffs. Uh,
0: And so I, I think it would just be great for college football and college football fans, and it makes too much sense not to do it. Is there anything that I didn't ask you about that is a pet cause, pet issue, anything that you want to pound your fist on the table and talk about on this platform right now?
1: Mm. Yeah, I I want to talk uh,
0: real quick,
1: NFL instant replay. I think right now with the advent of the pass interference replay, I think that's an abomination of the use of replay. I would like to see them add a sky judge. I would like to see them allow us to review uh, unnecessary roughness on the quarterback and then the uh, unnecessary roughness hits to the head-neck area on receivers because too often we see those plays being called incorrectly because they happen so quickly and the margin of error for a referee is so small, whether you hit somebody in the shoulder or the neck, Uh, And it's such a big play in the game. 15-yard automatic first down is a monumental play in the game. And I think that's something that should be reviewed. I think it should be reviewed from a sky judge, though, so the game doesn't get slowed down. And I think they need to remove the ability to review pass interference because I don't know anybody on the face of the Earth or on Mars that thinks it's a good idea what we're doing right now in the NFL with the pass interference reviews.
0: Yeah, but at the same time, it can be like a 60-yard penalty, so I think that it should be reviewed, but I would agree with you that the application of it has been an abomination because refs don't want to, I think, reflexively overturn a penalty or a non-penalty that they called, and so... My solution to this was the NFL should rehire Mike Pereira, put him in charge of replays, give him a twenty-four second shot clock, and his decision goes.
1: Yeah, I I think that's a great idea, but I I think it should happen from a sky judge role where we as fans don't even realize what's happening. Where the the play happens, and as soon as it's over, the ref in his little microphone can talk to somebody that's watching the replay, like a Mike Pereira from New York, and then can guide them so that as a fan of the stadium, the game doesn't slow down at all, but they're getting the plays right. And I I think with a sky judge, with somebody that's watching from New York, like a Mike Pereira, that, that can easily happen. We have the technology. We shouldn't have to have a five minute break in the game. Every time there's a pass interference or every time there's something that gets challenged,
0: it just doesn't make sense anymore
1: in today's NFL.
0: Amen. Once again, this is Joe Thomas on the glass half empty podcast on the big lead. Catch Joe calling Bucks versus Texans Saturday, 1 p.m. Eastern NFL Network alongside Rich Eisen, Nate Burleson and Melissa Stark. Once again, Joe, this is a bucket list podcast for me. I really appreciate your coming on. Hey, thank you so much for
1: having me on. It It was fun chatting and let's do it again.